I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about a door open in heaven. In this year that we've designated the year of the open door, but this year, 1 Corinthians 16, 9, is a year of open doors, effective doors, doors that God is opening for us as the children of God. But I want to talk to you about this in a different way. I want to talk to you about this door standing open in heaven as it relates to the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 51 and 52, the Apostle Paul writing, says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment. In the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall all be changed. Revelation is the final book in the New Testament and the most unusual. It is the only prophetical book of the New Testament in contrast to the 17 apocalyptic books in the Old Testament. The Life in the Spirit Study Bible Commentaries reads, it says, It is at once an apocalypse, a prophecy, and a composite of seven letters. The book is an apocalypse with regard to its content, a prophecy with respect to its message, and a letter in relation to its addressees. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 3 it says, Blessed is he who reads and those who hears the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it for the time is near. This is the only book in the Bible that that pronounces a blessing on those who read this book. There's also a scripture where it pronounces a curse on those who take away from it or add to it. But there's a blessing on those who hear the words of this prophecy. But I want you to note the words, those five words at the end of this verse. It says, for the time is near. I believe that's the time that we're living in. We are living in the last days. The resurrected Christ commissioned the Apostle John to write this revelation in a book and to send it to seven churches. In Revelation chapter 1, verse 9 through 11, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on an island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. He was banished, exiled to that island. That island was a penal colony. He was there as a prisoner. And listen to what happened. He wasn't moaning and groaning and complaining about his circumstance. He wasn't complaining about why has this happened to me. But listen to what he says in verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. And I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia to Ephesus, Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. These seven churches are known as the seven churches of Revelation. In Revelation chapter 1 verse 12, we find the resurrected Christ in the midst of the seven golden lampstands. These seven golden lampstands represent each of the seven churches. And Jesus himself, the resurrected Christ, the one who was dead but now he's alive, the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He addresses each of these churches individually. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 1, listen to his words. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write. Another way to translate this would be to the messenger. 
The word that we use in the Greek for angel can also be translated as messenger. And in this setting, I believe it is better translated not as an angel like we would know an angel, but it is translated as messenger, the messenger, the apostolic overseer of the church, the pastor of the church. And he says, write to each of these churches. Now, why did John write to these seven churches? Why did the Lord instruct him and commission him to write to these churches? Because there were over 100 churches that existed in that day. Well, I believe there are three reasons this morning that I want to give to you. I'm just setting a foundation. I'm not going to preach about the seven churches. I've already covered that some years ago. Maybe we'll go back and revisit that in another time. But there are three reasons that John wrote. First of all, there's a contemporary reason. Christ had a direct message to seven literal churches existing at that time. This wasn't just for all time. This wasn't just for the apocalypse. But he had a direct message to a literal church. And when he addressed that church, he's addressing a specific problem within that church. That was the contemporary purpose. Secondly, there's a composite purpose. That these messages are meant to be applied by all churches existing in all ages. To the church of Laodicea, he wrote to them, He said, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And because you're lukewarm, I will regurgitate you or spew you out of my mouth. He said, it's better to be hot or to be cold, but you're lukewarm. There are always, throughout time, there are always churches that are lukewarm. To the church at Ephesus, the mother church, the first church, the church that saw a tremendous revival and all of Asia was touched and heard the word of the Lord by that revival. It was in Ephesus that Paul went and he said, have you received the Holy Spirit since you believed? And they said, we've not so much as heard as that there is a Holy Spirit. And the Bible said that they began to speak in tongues and they began to prophesy as they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And out of Ephesus came a tremendous move of God. And it cut into the idol worship of the temple of Diana. And such a move of God, they touched that. They took pieces of Paul's apron and they sent them out. But when he writes to the church at Ephesus, he says, You have lost your first love. You have lost that passionate heart and love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, throughout history, there are churches that lose their first love. So there's a composite purpose. Then third, there's a chronological purpose. The characteristic of these churches serve as a prophetical preview of the seven great periods in Christendom from the Pentecost when God poured out his spirit to the rapture of the church when the Lord comes to get his church and take his church to heaven. I found this outline. It shows the different periods that are represented in church history. Stay with me because I'm going somewhere this morning. Ephesus represents the apostolic age in 96 AD. Smyrna was the church of the persecution beginning around the 2nd century. If you remember, they were burned at the stake. And, and uh, Nero, who was an insane emperor, would put Christians on stakes. And he would light his garden with Christians. And expect to hear screams of agony and pain as they burned in his garden. But what he heard was not screams of agony and pain. What he heard was singing and worshiping and rejoicing. See, anybody can worship God when things are going well. Anybody can praise him when everything's going your way. But listen to me. It takes grace to praise him in the midst of the storm. It takes the power of the Holy Spirit to enable you to praise him when there's persecution. Pergamos was the church of imperial favor beginning around 313 A.D. 
Thyatira was the church of the papacy beginning around 450 A.D. Sardis was the church of the Reformation beginning in the early 1500s. Philadelphia was the church of the latter-day outpouring, the end of the age. And Laodicea, the lukewarm church, is also the church at the end of the age. When you study Revelation, you learn the outline of the book is found in Revelation chapter 1, verse 19. People say, I can't understand Revelation. Revelation's too hard to understand. But listen to me. If you'll read Revelation chapter 1, verse 19, it'll pull the whole book together. Listen to what it says. Write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. The things you have seen was in chapter 1. He saw Jesus, the resurrected Christ, coming and he describes him in his vision there on the Isle of Patmos when he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Then he writes in Revelation chapter 2 and 3 to seven churches, the things which are. But then something shifts in Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. And from chapter 4 to 22 it says the things which will take place after this. Where are we today on God's time clock? I believe we're at the end of the church age in Revelation chapter 3. When the Lord finishes up, seven is a significant number in the book of Revelation. Seven always represents divine completion. It's one of God's perfect numbers. Divine completion. At the end of his letter to the seven churches in Revelation 3 verse 20, I want you to see where Jesus is. Listen to what it says. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Jesus is standing on the outside of the door knocking. He's outside the door where? Of the church. You remember what he said? You're lukewarm. You're rich. You're increased with goods. You have need of nothing. You push me out, and I'm standing outside the door of the church. I'm knocking. I'm saying, let me in, and I'll come in, and I will sup with you. I will dine with you. I'll fellowship with you. I'll have communion and intimacy with you. I'll sit down for the evening meal, and I'll prepare you for that which is to come. In Revelation chapter 3, we have to open the door. But something shifts in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After these things I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, Come up here and I will show you things which must take place after this. So this morning for the next few moments I want to talk to you about what this door standing open in heaven represents. I've come this morning to simply declare Jesus is coming. Not only is Jesus coming but he's coming very soon. So I want to talk to you this morning about the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We could call it the rapture. We could call it the translation. We could call it the blessed hope of the church. We could call it the catching away. Whatever you want to call it, I'm telling you Jesus is coming back for his church. I want you to notice, first of all, we have a promise from the Lord, the promise of his coming. Herbert Lockyer writes, he said, Revelation 4 opens with John being raptured to heaven to receive God's blueprint for the future. At the end of Revelation 3, man is invited to open a door for Christ, but in chapter 4, a door is opened in heaven for man to enter. If you're going to go through the door to heaven, you've got to first open the door to your heart on earth and allow the Lord to come in and take residence in your heart. The Bible talks about the second coming in the Old Testament, the Gospels, the Acts of the Apostles, the Epistles, and the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Francis Dixon wrote many years ago, the central and glorious fact of the second advent of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is so clearly stated in the Bible that even a child can grasp the truth that Jesus, who first came to earth some 2,000 years ago, is one day coming again the second time. We're a prophetic people. We're a people of promise. Second Peter chapter 1, verse 4 says, By which have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. How do we know that Jesus is coming again? Simply because the Bible gives the following promises concerning his second coming. We have a personal promise from the Lord Jesus Christ himself that he will personally come back to receive and rapture his church out of this earth in John chapter 14, verse 1, 2, and 3. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also, and where I go, you know, and the way you know. In Luke chapter 12, verse 40, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Then we have the words of an angel in Acts chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. This is at the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly towards heaven, as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, hallelujah, who was taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. Listen, this same Jesus. It's not going to be Elijah. It's not going to be Elisha. It's not going to be Moses. It won't be St. Peter. It won't be one of the apostles. But Jesus Christ himself is coming back to this earth again. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself. The Lord himself is coming back. Hallelujah. Now, why did God send angels to announce his second coming? Well, one function of the ministry of angels is to announce the plans of God. It was an angel of the Lord in Luke chapter 1, verse 11 through 17, that announced the birth of John the Baptist to Zechariah. It was an angel, Gabriel, the angel of communication or enunciation, who spoke to Mary and revealed she would conceive a child, a son, who would be Jesus. In Luke chapter 2, verse 8 through 15, God used angels to announce the birth of the Messiah to shepherds who were tending their flocks at night. God used angels to announce his resurrection, and now he uses them again in Acts chapter 1 to announce his second coming. This same Jesus will so come in like manner. What a promise we have today. Jesus is coming. There are too many promises to cover in this one message. If we only had the words of Jesus, that would be enough. If we only had the one scripture in Acts chapter 1, verse 11, that was spoken by the angels, that would be enough. But I want you to listen to the words of the Apostle Paul as he writes to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who've fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with them those who sleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Now notice verse 18. Therefore comfort one another with these words. The unfolding of the plan of the ages, the rapture of the church, is not to strike fear into the hearts of people, but it is to comfort the people of God to let them know that there's a better day coming, to let them know that there's more than just this life. The apostle Paul wrote in Romans 8, he said the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in it. Listen, around this world today, there are people who will lose their lives as martyrs for the faith. There are people who will stand in pulpits at the peril of their own lives. Secret police officers from the government will come in, put them in handcuffs, take them off to prison. They will abuse them and they will beat them and they will persecute them simply because they love the Lord Jesus Christ. All across the great nation of China, one of the largest populated nations on the earth today, underground churches will meet and they will sing, but they will not sing out loud. They will simply move their lips so that they will not be found out in Saudi Arabia. It's illegal to have a Bible. It is illegal to have a church. There's no church in Saudi Arabia that I'm aware of. If you're a Christian, you have to keep it in hiding. Because if you're a woman and you're a Christian and your husband finds out, you can be done away with, you can be divorced, you can be whipped publicly, you can even lose your life. And then you're separated from your children because in Islam you have no rights whatsoever. I've come by to tell you that God is mindful of those who are suffering from him. They're not going unnoticed today. You say, why would a just, holy God, a loving God allow that? I don't have the answers for that, but here's what I know. The scripture says, all who live godly... In Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But I've come to tell you we're to comfort one another with these words. Jesus is coming. Hallelujah. It's not to be feared, but we're to comfort one another with these words. In the early church, they would say Maranatha, which means the Lord is coming. So we have a promise. But then what are the signs of his coming? How do we know that his coming is near? How can you stand in this pulpit today and declare that Jesus is coming? Because the word of God tells us there's certain signs or signposts. Perhaps you've heard of the doomsday clock. There's a group of atomic scientists and they have this clock and they meet on a regular basis and they determine geopolitically what's going on in the world and, and they move the hands of the clock closer or away from midnight based on nuclear war and nuclear apocalypse and what nations are doing. And it's currently at two minutes to midnight. And it's administered by these that are supposedly smarter than we are. They examine the events of our leaders in the world, the global politics, to determine how close we are to destruction. I would like to think that their clock would be biased based on their political worldview. But I know of a better clock. It's an unbiased clock. God has a clock. It's not an apocalyptic clock, but it's a prophetic clock. The God we serve created time. He's the great chronographer of the ages. And in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, the scene shifts from earth to heaven. The apostle John is summoned into the throne room. After these things, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me saying, come up here. And I will show you things which must take place after this. G.R. Beasley writes, he said, It is evident that a new beginning in the book of Revelation is made at four, at chapter 4, verse 1. 
A door in heaven is open to enable the prophet to enter its portals and see what transpires in heaven and that he may understand what takes place on earth. Edward Henson writes, he said, this verse provides us with a heavenly perspective on human events and it reassures us that God is in control of it all. He's still on the throne. His sovereign will shall be done. His eternal purposes will be accomplished and his ultimate triumph is certain. God is a God of precision and order. He's in charge of the ages. Don't think for a minute that God's up in heaven trying to work plan B. Don't think for a minute that the creator of the universe who flung the stars in the sky, who spoke the worlds into existence, who put the earth and the planets in its orbit, who created the sun and gravity and all the things that we see. The Bible says you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Don't think for one minute that he's not in control of the plan of the ages, that God is not shaping the ages and causing the ages to bow to his will. The God we serve creates time and controls time. I've come to tell you he's on the throne today. He's on the throne today, and he reigns over the affairs of man. That's why you can trust him. That's why you can trust him in the storm. That's why you can trust him in the midst of difficulties. That's why you can trust him in hardship, because God's in control today. Now, we have to be careful that we don't use that as an excuse not to pray, or we use that as an excuse to do our own thing. God has chosen to partner with us in prayer, and we have to learn how to discern his will and pray his will. You see, we're on God's time clock. What is the greatest event on God's time calendar? Still to come. I believe according to scripture, it is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll just call it the rapture. The catching away of the church. It's not an escape. Somebody said, you're just preaching escapism, pastor. Oh no, it's not an escape. It's the greatest triumph of the church. The greatest day of the church is still to come. The greatest day of the church was not the day of Pentecost. The greatest day of the church is when Jesus Christ splits the skies, the trumpet of God sounds, the voice of the archangel cries out, the dead come up out of the cemetery, hallelujah. And then we which are alive and remain are caught up together with him to ever be with the Lord. I'm telling you something, in my 30 years of ministry, I've heard every version of the rapture. I've heard every theory for it. I've heard every teaching. And listen, there's teachings that are going around today that say that, that it's not going to happen, that somehow God's going to visit us with tremendous revival and we're going to rise up and take over all the earth. And when Jesus comes, we're going to hand the earth back to him. I don't believe that for one minute. That's not what the New Testament teaches. Come on, somebody. The Bible said we live in perilous times, difficult times, turbulent times, times of uncertainty and fear. But in the midst of that, Jesus Christ would be Lord. And the Bible says no man knows the day nor the hour, but the Father in heaven and I believe in just a little while he's going to turn to the son and say son go get your bride uh, go get your church uh, and it's going to set things in motion and Jesus Christ himself is coming back and then we who are alive and remain come on somebody we're not going to prevent those who sleep uh, we're not going to prevent those who have died in the faith they're going to be raised up in this hour it's going to be a great resurrection day and then we are going to be caught up with him Hallelujah. You say, well, pastor, what are we going to look like in heaven? We're going to be better looking. Amen. <laughs> the Bible said it does not yet appear to us what we shall be like, but when we see him, we shall be like him. This corruption, this subject to die, this mortal is going to put on incorruption and immortality. I'm going to be fashioned with a glorified, resurrected body. Hallelujah. And no longer can death and sickness and pain and anxiety and the things of this world touch me. Why? Because I'm going to be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. That word where it says caught, caught up, caught away. 
It's a Greek word. It means body snatched. I believe the rapture is a violent thing. I'm off my notes, but I'm just going to preach. Is that all right? The Bible said that the enemy is the prince in the power of the air. He controls the atmospheric heavens. That's why television and radio is so full of filth and evil. And the Bible said he's not coming to the earth, but he's coming in the air. Listen, Jesus is coming right into the domain of Satan. And he's going to violently snatch us out of here. One moment I'll be here and I'll be gone. Glory. Hallelujah. Jesus is coming. I've come with good news, the redeemed, the born again. Those who've experienced salvation, the Lord himself is coming back. He's coming with a shout, with the voice of the archangel. How do we know we're living in the last days? You say, Pastor, I've heard that my whole life. Jesus is coming. We're living in the last days. This event's been maligned and abused and even denied. The enemy will try to convince you that what I'm preaching is a hoax. Paul wrote about, or Peter wrote about that in 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4, knowing this verse that scoffers will come in the last day, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? Well, since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. What are the signs? Well, you find them in Matthew 24 and Luke 21. In Luke 21, 31 and 32, so you also, when you see these things happening, know that the kingdom of God is near. Surely I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all things take place. What are the signs of his coming? Verse 25 through 28 of Luke 21, signs in the sun, in the moon, in the stars, and on the earth distress of nations, with perplexity the sea and the waves roaring, men's hearts failing them for fear, and the expectation of those things which are coming on the earth. For the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. Now when these things begin to happen, look up. Lift up your heads because your redemption draws nigh. Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, Know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedience to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanders without self-control, brutal, despisers of good. There will be signs in the world. There will be signs in the church, and there will be signs in the nation of Israel. If you read the news, and you can go to watch.org and find out all about Israel from a Christian perspective. Bill Koning is the man. He used to be a, a reporter at the White House during the Bush administration. And he researches all that's happening and watches all that's happening prophetically in the Middle East. Let me tell you that Iran, Hezbollah, Syria, Shiite, Islamic, Turkey, and Russia are on the northern border of Israel. According to Ezekiel's prophecy about Gog and Magog, all the major players are in place. Just the other day, Netanyahu stood up and said, Iran lied, the Mossad. They went into Iran and stole tons of documents. I'm telling you, went into a country and stole it out of a safe house, out of a locked vaults, and brought it back to Israel and read through it and found out that Iran had lied about their nuclear intentions. All the players are in place. Israel is God's prophetic time clock. In Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14, Jesus gives these specific signs. False Christ and deceptions. Verse 5, verse 6, wars and rumors of wars. Verse 7, nation against nation, famines, pestilences, earthquakes in various places. He said persecution, betrayal, and hatred. Verse 9, verse 11, false prophets. Verse 12, lawlessness and the love of many growing cold. We're seeing all of that in the world today. And I, just for the sake of time, I don't have time to get in all, to the, all the signs. But these are signposts. These are warnings. And it's flashing. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. Jesus is coming. But listen to me. Those signs are for his second coming literally back to earth called the revelation. That's at the end of the tribulation. 
We believe in the imminent coming of the Lord, which means he can come at any moment. So if the signs are pointing to that, how much closer are we to the coming of the Lord? I didn't come today to make you fearful and afraid. I come to prepare your hearts for the greatest event yet to come on God's calendar. If there's one sign that maybe the Bible talks about, is that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached as a witness throughout the whole earth. So we got to get busy and preach the gospel where it's never been preached before. Amen? Let me give you this. Let me wrap this up. How do I prepare for the coming of the Lord? Are you rapture ready? He's coming for those who've experienced the new birth. Jesus gave these instructions concerning being born again. In John 3, 3, he said, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In John 3, 16 and 17, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. This is not a time to drift away from his love. This is not a time to grow cold and indifferent in your walk of faith. We must draw near to God. James, the half-brother of our Lord, writes in James chapter 4, verse 8, Draw near to God. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Jesus gives these instructions in Matthew 24, 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. We need to live as if Jesus could come at any moment. The Bible says that his coming will be unexpected. He'll come as a thief in the night. John Wesley, one of the great revivalists of yesteryear, was asked what he would do if he knew that Jesus would return on a certain day. He answered that he would have his time of prayer, read his Bible, work in his garden, and make no plans to do anything differently. Because John Wesley lived every day in expectation of the Lord coming. Do you live as if Jesus could come at any moment? Are you ready this morning should the trumpet sound and the Lord come back today? He's coming. How do I know we have his promise and we have the signs? Third, we must be prepared. Stand with me.